Welcome to Rational Radio this 18th of September 2019. If you were a superstitious kind of person, this is one of those days that you just don't want to forget. Number 18 is a very lucky number, and so half of that is nine. Well, uh, some people might find the next interview to be really interesting. We're going to be talking about the EB-5 to a former South African, Bernie Wolstoff, who is in the United States now. He's one of the top immigration lawyers there. We've got lots coming up, though. 5G is launched in South Africa today. We're going to talk about search investing. David Shapiro, as always, uh, will be bringing us up to date on the markets. Andrew Cantor, the Chief Investment Officer of Future Growth, has got some pretty strong views about prescribed assets. And they will be closing this, evening, uh, this show this afternoon with Gavin Watson's passing, re-looking at it with his brother Valence, who says, uh, suicide? Don't count on it. But uh, let's kick off the uh, program where we need to, and that's with Bernie Wolfstorff, who, uh, rather, who is with a firm in the United States, um, which is pretty high up on the rankings of immigration lawyers. And uh, we've asked him to just give us some insight into a huge thing that's changing at the moment. Bernie, you're in South Africa at the moment. Uh, from your accent, you, you hail from here originally. That is absolutely correct. I'm from Durban, and that's my home, and my heart is in South Africa. So the minute I land here, it feels like I've come back home. But I do have to correct one small thing, Alec. You said I'm one of the top immigration lawyers. Um, can I uh, just share some arrogance with you? I was rated the top immigration lawyer seven out of the last nine years. So let's go with the top immigration lawyer. I'm just pulling a leg out. Oh, I but, like uh, it. Pretty, no, a, a pretty fellow. in the area, but uh, I like messing around because I'm an Okie from Durban, and uh, uh, I like talking uh, silly from time to time. But I'm actually here for a really important and critical reason. Um, you know, America and a green card, and I, I love telling this to people, um, having a green card does not mean leaving South Africa. It does not mean closing the door to South Africa. It means opening the door to the United States. It means opening the door to the rest of the world. And many uh, South Africans are currently very interested in looking at this opportunity, the possibility that their children will be studying at an Ivy League university abroad and to provide this kind of opportunity. So honestly, we have been so busy. Uh, if I sound a little crazy, it's because I'm not getting enough sleep and uh, meeting with clients literally from morning till night. And here's the reason why. At the moment, the EB-5 or Immigrant Investor Program involves an investment of $500,000. But we have an unusual president. Uh, his name is President Donald Trump. And he's a businessman. And he has increased the price, the minimum investment, from 500000 to 900000 effective November 21. 2019. So we have this little window of about uh, literally two months in which you can buy the Mercedes-Benz at uh, 40% of the price. And it's worse than that because at the moment we can invest in what they call top-level projects and not have to go into rural areas. So in reality, to get the kind of projects and investments that are currently available after November 20 will cost 1.8 million, 350% increase. So that's why I'm here. Uh, the news is spreading rapidly. Um, it's kind of almost like uh, 
feeding frenzy right now. And um, this is the door that is closing. It's a little bit sad. Uh, maybe some president in the future will open it, but um, America's not as welcome, welcoming as it has been. Bernie, I've, so got a, then, I've got a couple of pals, uh, in fact, uh, four friends of mine, South Africans, who went into a um, low employment area in California. They invested around about uh, five million rand each, and they built quite a nice business there. Is that what you're talking about here, the EB-5 visa? In other words, bring entrepreneurs to the United States with their money, and we'll make it nice for them to stay. You know, it, 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 it's a little bit of a complex uh, program to explain in a few minutes, but the bottom line goes something like this. If you make a half a million dollar investment into a job producing, people get confused. It's not so much the investment. They want to see job creation uh, everywhere. The United States, everywhere in the world wants to see jobs being created. So this money is not sort of put into a bank. This money has to go into a job creating enterprise, what we call the JCE. And uh, if so what they do is they give you a two-year conditional green card, and then after two years, you have to have the condition removed. Then you get the full green card, and then after five years, so now we're sort of six, seven years down the road, you can apply to be an American citizen or, as I explained to all my South African clients, a dual citizen. But a little note of silliness, um, I tell all my clients, remember, when you have your American passport, you carry, that's the blue one, that goes on the right-hand side, but the green passport, that goes on the left-hand side over your heart, and make sure that when you go to South Africa, you give them the green one, and when you go to America, you give them the blue one, because if you get that mixed up, you might just get kicked out. <laughs> and there's no problem in having dual citizenship uh, from an American perspective. Well, Americans, interestingly, are more open-minded on this. Their attitude is we simply don't recognize that other passport. Um, the American attitude is, um, you know, if you commit treason, they can still hang you. So if you commit treason on America, they'll hang you, even though you can claim to be a dual citizen. But the South Africans and the South African government is actually quite restrict, uh, restrictive, and we have to get permission. So this is a warning to all South Africans. You need to get permission before you get a second passport or you will automatically re uh, lose your green number. Bernie, just to go back into the basics of all of this, if South Africans are looking to get to the United States, perhaps to live there at some stage in future or perhaps not, if, if the EB-5 visa gets you in, do you have to go? Do you have to follow your money Absolutely. there? So it's funny, I keep getting this question, and I think that a lot of people have been or have got bad information, all right? The green card requires you to live in the United States. It is true. Whoa, somebody is driving their motorbike outside my window. So there is um, a misconception in my opinion. There are rules and regulations, of course. And the rule is, if you have a green card, you are expected to live in the United States. But the good news is that there's something called a re-entry permit. Uh, sometimes we call it the white passport. South Africans actually like it because you can get visas and it's almost easier than getting a visa in a South African passport because they know once you have a green card, then um, 
obviously, uh, you know, you've got a place where you permanently resided called residing called uh, the United States so that they're not worried that you're going to jump ship as it were. But the simple bottom line is that they expect you to live in the United States. The reentry permit does allow you to be out for up to two years at a time. And that can be renewed for another two years and then one year at a time. I have seen people renew it year after year after year, but I also like to be very direct with my clients. Um, I don't like to butter things up. It's a bloody, oh, I'm on the radio. It's a hassle. Uh, to go through this because, you know, you have to have filing fees and lawyers and, uh, you know, kind of stuff. But the reentry permit is possible. And the truth is we're doing a lot for the South Africans because the life here is still pretty good. And, you know, they have most of my clients continue to have business interests here. And one of the things that I like to explain to everybody, for example, I live in Los Angeles. We do have seven offices throughout the United States. Uh, we have 150 employees. We are probably the biggest immigration law firm uh, in Los Angeles. Um, but um, I do like to point out one interesting point. In Los Angeles, for example, uh, you have the largest Korean community outside of Korea. And we now see large numbers of South Africans moving uh, to other countries. Now, the amount of trade between Korea and the United States is phenomenal. And who are the people who are moving this? Who are the people who are making this happen? It's obviously the Koreans who've immigrated. So one of the things that I would like to point out to those of them who see immigrating as not being loyal um, is that many of us South Africans, many of the South African businesses continue to grow their businesses in South Africa. Global trade is a good thing. Having South Africans abroad who are doing business with South Africa, import, export, development, this is a global economy with a computer you can work anywhere in the world. I just met with a client, interestingly, small uh, software development company, and you know they're subcontracting to an American company. So this is where the world is going. This EB-5 green card opens the door and numerous opportunities to people who can do it. But unfortunately, uh, this is expensive. Half a million uh, today's uh, exchange rate uh, is uh, is a hell of a lot of money. Um, but I will point out that some people see it as a currency hedge. I'm not a currency specialist and I don't give any advice on that topic. But I do know that three years ago, the Rand was worth a lot more. Bernie Hill, uh, Wolfsdorf is the managing partner of Wolfsdorf Rosenthal. And as you heard, uh, he is the top immigration lawyer in the United States. And uh, that's quite something uh, from a, for a boy from Durban. Just to, just to go back and just recap those, those numbers, uh, the in- investment that's required to get this EB-5 visa, the green card, in other words, is $500,000 at the moment. Many South Africans have used it, have applied it, but it's going to be jumping to $900,000 if you're going to invest in only in targeted employment areas, in other words, areas where they have unemployment issues. Uh, and if you want to just invest anywhere, it's going to go up to $1.8 million. No wonder he's run off his feet. In just a moment, we're going to find out about a big move in South Africa. 5G has arrived. Well, while you see a chance, take it. And uh, Rain has certainly seen a chance. Willem Rus joins us now. He's the man who founded Outsurance, moved across into a completely different area. And today we celebrate with him 
the launch of 5G in South Africa. Willem, we haven't seen each other for a while, but I've been following your progress. Any significance in this lucky day, number 18 of the month, of the ninth month, in, in actually launching 5G into South Africa, one of the first in the world and uh, the first on the continent? Um, uh, we're working so hard uh, to get our network up and running and get everything in place so we can start offering it to clients. So uh, the moment uh, we were ready and we were confident that we could push the button, button we did so. So we've been uh, working day and night for the past couple of weeks. I'm very proud of our team and we are indeed very tough to have this, what we think is a groundbreaking um, uh, event for not only rain, but can also, you know, help South Africa to uh, benefit from the phenomenal technological revolutions uh, we're seeing. So we very tough to have gotten 5G into the market. What is the difference between 5G and what we have at the moment? So 5G is the next generation wireless uh, technology uh, that the worldwide standards bodies have uh, agreed on. And it really is around three pillars, Alec. The first is a massive increase in speed and capacity. Uh, so it's just much, much faster than 4G, up to 10 times faster and probably 20, 30, 40 times the capacity uh, per tower that you set up. In future, uh, 5G holds a fantastic promise because you can connect millions of Internet of Things devices to the network without slowing it down and bogging it down. And sorry for a few technical terms, but then you get stuff like critical machine-to-machine communication and high availability. And that can really introduce uh, sort of some of the promise of the fourth industrial revolution. We're talking about smart cities virtual and augmented reality, drone deliveries, and so on. Those things are a bit in the future, though. For ordinary South Africans at this point in time, 5G, I suppose, really means super or ultra-fast Internet at your home at a, at a really affordable price. Um, and because it's wireless, uh, the installation is, is very easy. It's very simple. You just buy a router and you plug it in, and you're immediately connected uh, to the Internet. And, um, you know, studies have shown, Alec, that if you increase broadband penetration in a country, you also get a bit of a lift in economic growth. And that's really something I think we need in South Africa. So what took you away from Outurance, very successful company, to this whole new line, a data-only, what would you call it, a cell phone uh, network, but only based on data? Yes, indeed, Alec. Um, I am still very much involved, or not very much involved, involved at Outurance. I still sit on the board there. But I felt it was uh, time for a change for me personally. And, uh, you know, a fresh pair of legs at Outurance, uh, I think, was necessary, and and that business is still doing phenomenally well. Um, But I I, I was very excited to have joined Ryan. It really was at its infancy. uh, We still consider it to be a startup and and Alec, if you have a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, it's really nice to be involved in, in, in something new and um, also being involved in something impactful. Um, uh, you, you know, like I, like I said, if, uh, if, if we can reduce the costs of data and, and bring the latest innovation to the continent and, and to the country, uh, you know, we feel we can also do our bit to, um, to make South Africa a better place to live in.
And you certainly know your partners, Paul Harris and uh, Michael Yodan, of course, also from the, the whole first round group. Uh, just, uh, just to go back to the whole idea of 5G, where it's launching today, but where can one pick it up and, and how do you go about doing that and what differences are you going to see? Right, so it's uh, actually quite simple. The first phase is we've actually approached our own internal clients who selected few clients whom we know live in uh, good coverage areas, and we'll be approaching them to see if they don't want unlimited internet at home. You'll get speeds up to 700 megabits a second for, for a thousand bucks a month. Hang, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, Willem, hang on. <laughs> 700 megs. Now, I was in the UK and we had to fiber there and we got to 180 megs. 700, that, that's off the charts. It is off the charts, uh, Alec. It is, it is truly a revolutionary uh, technology. And, and I suppose that's, 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 that's why, um, you know, we're so excited about it. So we, we think a client should get at least 200 uh, and, and get up to 700 if they're in really good radio conditions. It remains a radio network. So um, we obviously can't guarantee an exact speed. But, but, but certainly you should see uh, speeds in excess of uh, 200 megabits. Um, so once we're confident that everything is humming nicely, in the next couple of weeks we'll open it up to anybody who lives in our coverage area. You'll be able to simply go to our website, see if you've got 5G coverage, uh, and you just order a strap there. We deliver a router to your home for free. We've got a launch. For our clients, it's only a thousand, and for the future, it'll be a little bit more expensive uh, once once we go live to to the public. But given that you have no other installation costs, that's really really good value for money. Uh, the router's got the latest Wi-Fi six, so you have a very fast network in your home as well. And uh, you know, if, uh, if you you join, you go through a quick recap process, and uh, and off you go. Uh, at this stage, we've estimated we provide coverage at close to 500,000 homes already in uh, Joburg and Swane. And over the next couple of years, we'll uh, try and expand to most of the metro areas in South Africa. Just very quickly, what suburbs uh, in those areas? Because I'm sure people are listening now and saying, hey, I'm in Bryanston. Am I going to be able to get this? Bryanston certainly uh, has coverage. Mbisa uh, has got coverage. Uh, uh, many suburbs in Joburg has got coverage. Uh, Alec, um, uh, Just go to the uh, website. Uh, sort of, words, yeah. <laughs> mm. Go to the website. We, we don't have the coverage map live at, at this point in time. So what we've done, uh, uh, Alec, is you can leave your name and detail and capture the address where you're going to use 5G. And the moment you get into uh, coverage, uh, we'll uh, contact you and, and, and see if we can't get you hooked up. Okay, so Willem, I am now moving home. Uh, I shouldn't be putting in fiber. Is this what you're telling me? Because fiber will give me maybe 100 megabytes. With you, I could get yeah, at, mo- at least 200 and maybe even 700. Most most fiber connections uh, uh, max out at 100. Uh, there, there is some fiber providers who can uh, do uh, give you more. Uh, but our view is that 5G is a really, really good alternative to the last mile of fiber. Fiber is still very important, Alec. We need to get fiber to all of the 5G towers because, you know, that's the only medium that has the, the true uh, big uh, capacity. But, uh, you know, we, we question whether it's really necessary anymore to go and dig up all the roads and go through your garden and try and get this fiber strand into, uh, into your home. Uh, once the 5G tower is up in your area, 
you will get speeds that are uh, in excess of the vast majority of fiber connections that are currently available. Well, congratulations, Willem. It's good talking with you again, the founder of Outurance, co-founder of Rain. Uh, Willem Roos, one of South Africa's entrepreneurs who's changing the world. I think I'm going to be talking to them quite soon about uh, putting putting oh, this 5G into our new property. But uh, in a moment, we're going to be talking about something else that's really exciting on investing. Stay with us. Of course, this is for Willem. He's got to be happy today. Brendan Mullen joins us now. He sent me a mail a couple of weeks ago after the World Economic Forum Africa uh, Summit to say, hang on, you know there's something really good going on called Search Fund, or it's, it's another model of investing. It's, uh, it's, it's different to venture capital, uh, private equity, normal investing, I guess even different to impact investing, but it, it, did, it did remind me a little bit of that. But Brendan... Let's just go back a little bit. You co-founded a company called Setcher Capital. You're the MD there. Did you, where did you come across this uh, search fund concept before we, we go into more depth there? Because clearly that's what's driving your new bu- or your business. Sure. And thank you very much for the, for the time, Alec. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I, I felt compelled to reach out after reading about a lot of the new innovative ideas coming out of the WEF and and, you know, various investment models that people talk about and importantly, you know, kind of the focus, especially in South Africa on, on tech investment and the fourth industrial revolution, you know, these high flutin words. And I, I suggest, I humbly suggest, uh, and what such a capital is, is borrowing elements from, but we kind of get back to the basics of, of investing. It's, it's almost, you know, more natural, you know, biomimicry type of investing. And that's the, the search fund model. Um, so the search fund model is very popular in the U.S. and increasingly in Europe. Uh, it's generally some whip smart uh, young person from you know, McKinsey, Bain, where I used to work, um, or an MBA wants to become a CEO early. So it's referred to as uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition. You raise a little bit of capital and you go find a, uh, a company to, to buy. It's often in kind of boring, fragmented sectors, maybe family run and it's doing all right. And you then apply your, your kind of MBA skills to increase margins, do a little bit of marketing to increase revenues, uh, upskill the team. And then a few years later, you sell it off at a, at a higher valuation. In the interim, of course, you know, creating jobs, uh, upskilling the, the management team um, and creating financial returns. Uh, and, you know, we hear a lot about the, the, the various tech investments that are getting front page news. And that is great. Uh, but what I'm, I contend is let's, let's, you know, utilize this, this search fund model because I think it's actually a much better fit for the, uh, for the sub-Saharan African, uh, impact investing and investing space than a lot of the other models that we kind of copy and paste from Silicon Valley in the U.S. I really like this from a South African perspective, uh, given that uh, many people are emigrating. We heard a little bit earlier from uh, Bernie Wolfstorff about how the demand for green cards or EB-5 visas in the U.S. Is, is high. And you would presume a lot of these people own businesses. They want to get out of the businesses. They'd like to get a partner who's going to go in there and, who knows, maybe rejuvenate it. Are you seeing that the demand 
uh, is being met or is, is, that there's sufficient supply, in other words, of these businesses for mm-hmm. the demand, which must be high? So I think that's a great question. So it's a two-sided market. I think you've hit on it. And there's a duality to this additionality, right? So again, to, to the refrain is it's entrepreneurship through acquisition or what we're trying to do with such a capital. It's entrepreneurship through kind of the investor operator model. And I can get to that later. But, but to answer your question is, is yes, that uh, we have, you know, South Africa's best and brightest are not going into entrepreneurship. They're not going to SMEs. SMEs cannot afford, you know, attract, retain, develop uh, these, these best and brightest, you know, the UCT grads, the, the you know, the UJ, the VITs, uh, because we also have these multinationals that are here. So, you know, we have, you know, the KPMGs of the world, you know, the, again, the, the Baines of the world. Um, and, and that's where people, you know, are excited to go. But what if we give them a route to entrepreneurship that's, you know, kind of lower risk, uh, that doesn't require a ton of capital, and then they, too, can become entrepreneurs. So that duality of developing an entrepreneurial ecosystem and developing the SME ecosystem is win-win for uh, the the entrepreneur and for South Africa. So what kind of numbers are you talking about? How much is lent typically to the entrepreneur who'd be using this capital to invest in the business they're going to be working in? Sure, it, it varies, uh, but it's generally kind of angel investing type you know, type money um, in this in this environment, you know, five, 10 million rand would be plenty to buy a majority stake in, a, in an SME. I can tell you at, at such a capital where we're kind of a, a scaled search fund an accelerated search fund. So we don't take ownership stakes, but we take minority stakes. Our first fund is, is very small for the quote unquote private equity. It's a 50 million rand fund. We've invested in six companies to date. Uh, we've increased top line on average 5x. Margins are increasing, and we've been, you know, we've created 70 jobs. Five and that's just over three years. Yep. Five, five uh, you know, five Some times. of them we're buying in at, you know, they're, you know, they're doing 800K a year. Others are doing, you know, 30, 30 million rand uh, top line a year. Uh, but that's where the opportunity is, this large pipeline of SMEs that are otherwise ignored by your more, you know, traditional capital providers. Again, when we copy and paste a, a private equity buyout model from the U.S. and we have a billion-dollar fund uh, in, in South Africa – that limits the amount of companies that you can invest in. And then generally the people working for your fund are, you know, they look like me, but maybe 10, 20 years older. They're, they're white guys, gray hair, and they're deal makers. What I'm saying is let's do more search funds. Well, let's get younger entrepreneurs in there. And then that also increases the diversity of people in finance and developing these management skills. What kind of people typically are taking up those opportunities, those six guys or those six companies that you've invested in? What kind of profile of the of the of the person who's who's gone in there um, might it be? Sure. So so it's it's such a what our model is. Uh, it was co-founded by uh, Rashil Balab, Mbuso Kambule, and, and myself. And Rashil and I are you know the classic profile MBAs. We worked at Bain. We met. But what's been important is we've been able to recruit uh, even younger people to second in these companies where they serve as. Uh, uh, Chief operating officers uh, temporarily. So right now we have Yusuf Yusuf Shaikh, who is a UCT grad. He worked at BCG, and he is now working at, at Hair City, our fifth investment. We have Guhle Manisi, who uh, graduated with a, a master's from UCT. Uh, she interned at Goldman Sachs, and now she's the chief operating officer for Rush Nutrition. Um, so these are you know these are high caliber, some of the best and the brightest of South Africa that otherwise we wouldn't be wouldn't be able to work for an SME doing. 20, 30, 40 million rand a year top line. They'd be going to the Goldman Sachs. They'd be going, you know, staying at BCG. But our platform has been a kind of a shortcut bridge to get, the, you know, this high-powered talent 
to work for SMEs and help solve that management gap. And when you get the, the best and the brightest of, of South Africa's youth with the grit and sector knowledge of these uh, existing entrepreneurs, uh, you know, these, these um, SME owners, that's where the magic really happens. That's, it's amazing. You know, every time there's something in a society that you think you know what's going on, i.e. in South Africa, there are many people who feel the economy is falling and people are immigrating and the skills are leaving the country. You get something like this, which shows you that's not actually the case. Well, I echo your optimism. And, and I think it's because, you know, this is, if you look at it from a returns and impacts perspective, you could see it as kind of financial and human capital arbitrage, right? Where else, you know, and so it's such as a 12J. So it, it kind of enables us to, to write these smaller checks. So the average investment fund is not writing a 3 million rand check or 5 million rand check. Um, and like I said, the average UCT uh, VITS grad is not working at SME. So if you can kind of, you know, go into these markets that are fragmented, that are ignored, that are quote unquote boring and, you know, work with the existing entrepreneurs who are already great. They just need a little bit of help. You know, that's that's where something truly great can happen. And again, I like the additionality of it. So Native Child is our first investment. It's natural hair care for black women. So every brand that uh, so when Setsa invested in Native Child, that's money that maybe would have been otherwise sent offshore. Right. High net worth individuals looking to bypass tax. So it goes to Native Child. Now, every rand that's spent on a native child product stays in South Africa. It stays in this ecosystem, whereas otherwise maybe you buy a Unilever product or a L'Oreal product and it goes to Europe or the U.S. So I like this kind of additionality, this multiplier effect of this search fund model that Secha borrowed from. Brendan Mullen is with uh, Secha Capital, a search fund. I like the model too. I, I, I love anything to do with entrepreneurship. And uh, this is one which is giving younger people Man, if I was a few years younger, well, okay, but more than a few years younger, this is a thing that is straight out of university that is like a, an entrepreneur's dream. More strength to their uh, elbows. David Shapiro is joining us now, as promised. And uh, Mr. Shapiro, I've just been talking about search fund, a search fund where uh, it's, it's somewhere between angel investing and private equity where young entrepreneurs come in, uh, are supported by uh, a search fund, invest in a SME, go in as the uh, chief operating officer and then grow the business together with the owner and eventually with, a, with the idea of taking it over uh, in, in time. Isn't that an interesting model? Have you come across it before? No. No, a search fund. Yeah, it's that's very interesting. I know, I, I know Angel, and I certainly know the other extreme. But uh, you, you know, Alec, it, it's I come from a. I mean, I'm an accountant. My brother's an accountant. My son's an accountant. And um, why why I say that is that I certainly recognise the need uh, of of good controls or some kind of. A uh, person who knows accounting, who knows banking, who knows regulatory environment, um, to help companies grow. And and what you do is that you know you tend to find people who have got ideas and get very excited about the idea, but they don't really understand the kind of journey they have to go through in order to make it a successful company. And that's the boring part of uh, of, of entrepreneurship is just having some accountant sitting on your shoulder. And, 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 you know, just holding you back or at least guiding you. So very interesting that you've got people like that. 
I, I, it might not be accountants, but it's certainly people with, I would imagine, with business experience. Disciplines, you know? yeah. Disciplines, yeah. yeah. It's Buffett, a better word. I loved what Buffett, mm. Warren Buffett said about it. He said the, business, the language of business is accounting. And yes. uh, you wouldn't mm. go, if you didn't understand French mm. and start a shop mm. in France, <laughs> no. you wouldn't know the language. No. The same thing. Yeah. Why start a business if you don't mm-hmm. understand accounting? No. Or at least have someone who does in your team. But, uh, you know, we're looking at this JSE and you wonder if we don't have mm. a similar malaise there in some of the companies. Um, without, All without, the time. Without knocking <laughs> Sassel again, because it went up. This week yeah. uh, on the yeah. oil price, what what do you make of this, Dave? The risk it's, a premium is coming uh, back into oil. No, I look. First of all, oil's stabilising now, but I don't think that takes any of the pressure off, um, you know, off Sassel. I think talking to people, and I've been around the last couple of days, meeting various clients and attending presentations, and I think there's a deep set anger out there for the way that Sassel have uh, performed, the way that they've held back on their accounts. And the point you make um, in terms of discipline, I think if we go through the JSC, you know, you're looking at ELH had a trading statement this morning, and I mean, it's going to take years for them to reestablish this business. Um, and, and, and all of this points to discipline, and the whole Sassel story is discipline. How can a company of that size, of that magnitude, with that kind of power, have allowed things to get so out of control? And by out of control, this is the Kusili Medipi type of out of control. You know, well, what is this project going to cost? You start off with a budget and you just miss it by, you know, by mountains. It's just, it's so far away from where you originally planned. And of course, uh, when you plan businesses, hmm? help me out here. Uh, remember yes. the chief executive, David Constable. Yes, He was yes. brought in from mm. Pure Corporation, yes. young Canadian engineer, mm. superstar, paid more than any other CEO in South Africa. Yeah. He was in control and in charge completely, yeah. it seems, when he started this thing. Who does he hire to build it but Fluor Corporation, where he comes from? <laughs> Surely there should be some kind of a check and balance uh, against that. Because, he, you know, if a guy's got a hammer, Everything looks mm. like a nail. If you come from Fleur, everything. <laughs> yeah. And now we now yeah. we sit. Now the shareholders. Now, yeah, of course they do. And 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 I think those questions should have been asked in the early stages of did they go through the right kind of procurement exercises and tenders and so on, but that it's gone so badly, you know, that it's gone pear shaped is just a mystery uh, to a company like Sassel, you know, that started. Uh, when in the 50s or 60s making coal, making oil from coal and had such a proud record to be where it is today is, is a very sad indictment of, of people along the way. And they had great engineers and great people. So where has it gone wrong? But Alec, I can list a hundred companies on the JSE that have gone through similar type of, uh, situations where I think sometimes their ambitions have just run ahead of their, should I say, skills or disciplines or both. Mm. Um, and it's been it's a, it's it's something. If ever you want to write a book, when you get bored, go through sixty nines, eighty fives, eighty sevens, and you take you take the track record of so many of those listings and how they failed, and ask why they failed. And I think a lot comes down to just management's over ambitions. They could run small companies 
couldn't run big companies, but that doesn't apply in Sassel's case. David, you cannot get bored in South Africa. It doesn't matter what you do in this country. It's boredom is not an option. Richmond down 5% yep. today. Mm. What's mm. the story? I, I, t- I picked up a story that UBS have downgraded them. And they looked at all the... Um, they looked at all the luxury companies, uh, which is Richmond. So they obviously, I haven't seen the report because it came out this morning. I've got to go and dig for the report uh, on why they downgraded Richmond. But they've also downgraded Swatch. So it's, it seems to be Swiss watch companies that they've downgraded. And yet they've revised their targets. And it seems to be in a positive way for both Kering and LVMH. And LVMH is a luxury company. In other words, it's accessory bags and shoes and uh, liquor and etc so um, there's something that's worrying them something that's worrying the market on the mainly on the watch side as opposed to luxury as a as as a theme so i think that's why we've seen them knock today but that doesn't seem fair people who've seen <laughs> the ubs report mm-hmm. get this sell the shares, and the rest of us have to find out yeah, second. And I, thankfully, we've got a friend in David Shapiro who can tell <laughs> Most people wouldn't have a clue. No, I know. Well, you see what happens here. That's, that's what we do is, is when I see unusual movements like Richmond, I'm saying, you know, I like Richmond. Why is it down like that? And then we start to dig. And you go onto Google, and Google tells you somewhere along the way that they've uh, downgraded it. So I've I've yet to go and find out the exact reason why they have downgraded. And uh, um, you know, look, you know, research is something. It's it's an analyst opinion, and I don't know whether that's really um, in the public domain. So it's some analyst opinion that has caused it, not really anything to do with the company. And that's what we have to estimate and, and, and look at. But I would attribute it to the fact that uh, uh, they have quite a you – know, I mean, some big names like UBS do have a powerful uh, – you know, can, can uh, sway markets. It must be quite ego-boosting for the analyst who wrote that report. Oh, yeah. to see billions and billions of dollars taken off the stock. But we, tell, tell us about yeah. NASPERS and Process, Dave. The I'm one, looking uh, at NASPERS and saying, my yeah. goodness, this is now very cheap and you should be buying it I, in South Africa. I agree with you. You know, I, first of all, they came on a week ago, and I mean, we came on with such a lot of fanfare. We saw process go up to you know 1,200. Uh, NASPES itself was uh, doing pretty well, I mean, adjusting for process. And then just the last day or two, I think we've seen big, big selling. And I can't understand because all the reports and views that uh, we've, you know, collected have all been really positive. And I think people are looking exceptionally, um, you know, positively on the outlook. So why they've come under so much pressure in the last two days um, is a, bis- a bit of a mystery that, that uh, someone with big holdings should be getting out. And, and Alec, they're dominating trade in a big way on the JSC. I'm t- each day over the last couple of uh, three or four days, they've, they've uh, added up to about 30 to 35% of the value traded on the JSE. So even today, I took out the numbers, uh, NASPERS making up 23% of trade, it's down over 3% and process 2.5% down on 10% of trade. So 33% of the volumes we see are attributed to those and doing a lot of damage to the index. Hmm. It's also, I suppose, giving you a different perspective on the JSE itself because there were many mm. who, who got out of the JSE stock on the concern that the split would see reductions in the trading volumes, which is, of course, a slight <laughs> well, well, I, I, I think for the meantime, we still, it's still trying to settle down. 
So I would imagine we'll st- see this for some time. But uh, uh, if I take take it away, our market would be very, very quiet at the moment. We've seen action. Now, yeah, there's been a bit of action in Cecil. And today there's lots of action in Richmond. Obviously, uh, a lot of trading around uh, the movements. But, um, you know, NASPES and Process still very, very active. So, um, I, Alec, I wish I understood trading. I wish I understood, you know, when I say trading, Modern trading, high frequency trading, the kind of, you know, the kind of uh, trade that computers do. I'm still very old fashioned when it comes to the market and still look at it in that same way that I did maybe 20, 30 years ago. So I sit here confused at some of the, you know, at, at the swings that we see uh, dictated by, by this high frequency trading. You're not so old-fashioned, David. You're on Twitter, <laughs> and you cause chaos on Twitter. What have you caused chaos with me this no. week, or have you been very well-behaved? I've been, I've, been, I've been very well-behaved. I think, I think I, I keep getting the phone call from CEOs, you know, can we meet for a cup of coffee? I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, boy. Don't we just know that story? David Shapiro is the Deputy Chairman of Sassman Securities, and in a moment we're going to be talking to another a uh, very famous South African in the investment field, Andrew Cantor, who's the Chief Investment Officer at Future Growth. Well, fireball indeed, Andrew Cantor, the Chief Investment Officer of Future Growth. Andrew, I believe you had, unfortunately I wasn't there, but I believe you had a wonderful debate with Mark Barnes, ex of SA Post Office and Capital Alliance, etc., on prescribed assets. Mark, believing South Africa should have them, you took a opposing view. Let's just go back though, for those who don't have a clue what prescribed assets are. I recall as a young journalist that that they existed in South Africa under the apartheid regulation. In fact, up to 53% of pension fund assets had to go into these things called prescribed assets. What exactly are they? Well, prescribed assets is when basically government-based regulation that tells pension funds that they must have a minimum holding of certain assets or asset classes. So in the case you're talking about where at the tail end of the apartheid government, the government prescribed that that 53% of pension fund assets had to be in government bonds or SOE bonds. Um, so what, what's the consequence of that? Well, it's, the consequence is it takes away investment choice, it skews asset allocations, and ultimately it's been proven that that period in South African history cost pension fund uh, holders quite a lot of money. They could have gotten much higher returns with a normal asset allocation, with normal allocation to, say, equities or properties. So there's no, it's no surprise then that pensioners are not very happy about the talk that prescribed assets are coming back. Well, indeed. And in fact, that South African experience is not what you call, call disastrous because, I mean, the returns were earned and the government ultimately paid back the debt. But if you look more broadly globally, uh, there's no global experience where any any case of the government really t- prescribing what pension funds had to do was beneficial for those investors in the long run. Um, I mean, in the disastrous cases like Egypt, Nigeria, Zambia, uh, even Namibia and Ghana, there are huge losses. And in the benign cases like Singapore, Malaysia and Sweden, there was just a, a, a minor diminution of returns. But, you know, you know, it's really it looks to me like a money grab it looks to me like uh, a political a political system where it, rather than take hard decisions to make uh, make uh, choices about how to run uh, government departments and state owned enterprises so that they can properly access capital through a free, free fair and efficient capital market uh, they're trying to skew it so they can get easy access to cheap capital and what does cheap capital mean it means lower returns to pension fund investors below what they should earn in a free market so there shouldn't be any prescribed asset requirements well, that's my view, sure. Mm. Now, now the, the good-hearted feeling, and I, I want to say Mark, Mark wasn't pro 
prescription uh, mark was pro-development. And there is a counter-argument that every, all, all of us, as citizens, as taxpayers, even as pension fund investors, feel we need to do something to, to help South African development through this difficult period of low, low growth, high unemployment, inequality is growing, and we all want to play a part in that. And I think what people forget, they're muddling up the, the good intention and the, and the goal with the methodology. The methodology of telling people how to invest is a, would it be a complete distortion of the capital market that we have. And we have a really great pension and savings industry and asset management industry. And I know there have been notable failures uh, where, where things weren't spotted and corporate governance failures have occurred. But broadly speaking, it is a great national asset to have an independent, free and fair uh, capital allocation mechanism so that savings can flow into investments. And that's the key economic equation. More savings equals more money available for investments. And if you, if you start messing around with people's pension fund savings, and we're seeing it already, we're seeing it already, people are already nervous about saving in the pension funds. We've seen people quit their jobs to crystallize their pension funds to take it out of government's potential hands. If you reduce the savings culture, you reduce savings and you increase the cost of money, the cost of capital, the interest rates, if you will, across the entire economy. Andrew, just before the budget this year, the Department of Finance, the Treasury, had a, a very poorly attended press conference, not surprisingly because it was quite technical. But I went along and listened and they were talking, they, they touched on prescribed asset requirements because one of the journalists there asked them about it. And they said, but pension funds are already investing heavily into government bonds and, well, gilts and semi-gilts, uh, Eskom stock, etc. Is, isn't that something to take into account that, in fact, they're already in those, uh, those, those vehicles? It is part of the ridiculousness, ridiculousness of this whole proposal. So, so let's, let's, let's go back to the first, I'll, I'll address your, your specific question in a minute, but let's go back to the base principle. The assumption, there are two assumptions underneath the concept of prescription. The first assumption is that the problem is a shortage of money for development. That is absolutely untrue. South Africa has a, a large capital market, a large savings industry. If the government brings an intelligent, sustainable SOEs or developmental proposals or developmental projects, there is plenty of money funded and the second assumption under prescription is that if you don't force pension funds to do it, they won't do it. That is utter rubbish. We've been doing development, development investment in future for 25 years. We've never had a shortage of money or a shortage of support from investors. Now, go to, going to your point, going to your point about that pension funds are already doing it, right now, rough statistics, and they get out of date quickly, maybe it's 18-month-old statistics, roughly about 25% of, of private pension funds in South Africa today are invested in government bonds, SOEs, or other tangible development. That's 25%. Through the GEPF, by the way, the government employees pension fund goes up to 34%. So what are you going to prescribe? Uh, in fact, I heard a, I heard a funny joke uh, the other day. Somebody said they should prescribe that we have to use the all bond index as a, as a benchmark because it's all government bonds and SOE bonds. So I mean, we all the joke being we all use the all bond index as our as our bond index. So 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 what is prescription for? What's the point? What are we trying to accomplish? And and I have to given all the rational evidence of its of its utter failure of the of the lack of need for it. The truth being, there's a lack of deals, not a lack of money. I just see it as, as, as a political ploy to channel uh, a, an easy and weak source of capital into favored, politically favored developmental areas. I mean, I know, maybe, some, maybe somebody thinks they want to channel pension fund money into rural development in a certain province where you and I know it'll go and it will never come back from because it's a political movement on your pension fund. And that's why people are justifiably scared. Does that also put on some red lights about corruption? Because if you start allocating resources to areas where they're not going to be giving the returns to those who are providing the resources, uh, sometimes you believe that there's some nefarious motive. 
Sure. Well, even if it's not even if it's not that, which it could be, but even if it's not that, it, it's just shoving shoving a lot of money in a particular direction. You're going to get people say, "Oh, well, the uh, the, the government says we must do this," so you're suddenly going to get fun, funds pop up that are going to do whatever the government prescribes. I don't know. You must build low-income housing in rural areas. Suddenly, you're going to have a hundred low-income rural housing funds pop up, even though those teams don't have track records, deal pipeline. Um, they haven't done the economic research. They haven't done their on-the-ground work. They don't know how to lay bricks, and you're going to have a lot of money forced to flow into those funds and products into those areas, and it will be lost. Or at the very least, you'll have diminished returns. Or particularly if they say they say you must put it into certain SOE bonds, um, uh, then you will have a lower return than you would have gotten in a free market uh, clearing system. Um, and, and, and I want to be careful. Not all SOEs are bad. We know this. There are some SOEs that we know are well-governed, well-run, good, sustainable, fundable businesses. DBSA, IDC, Land Bank being the most notable examples, although there are others. And we, they access the market on a weekly, regularly, monthly basis at, at, at fairly efficient rates in large volumes for long-term debt. And then there's other SOEs that really should not be able to access capital at this point in their, in their life because they are not be running as, run as sustainable enterprises. And you could throw in that pot the Denells and the SABCs and the SAAs and the essay expresses, um, and then we can have a debate about Eskimo, but let's not go there. <laughs> well, you've had that debate before. Andrew, <coughs> h- how do you feel now? You've, you were blowing w- blow- or waving flags. You were blowing whistles. You were, whatever you want to call it, uh, telling the country that there was a problem in the SOEs. In fact, you were the first one not to invest in SOEs. I think you got into a bit of trouble on, on that, and then... Uh, went back in. But but how do you feel about that whole debate back then, given what's happened subsequent? Um, so so uh, I, 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 we, we always said was what everybody was thinking, actually. This is a, a classic case of, some, of, the, of the little boy saying the emperor has no clothes. Everybody in the country knew in their hearts at that point that the governance in various SOEs was problematic. All we said was we have decided we will make no more new loans to these SOEs until we can conduct a governance review. And in fact, we did four of them, and uh, I've named three of them, DBSA, IDC, and Lambic. We cleared them, and we continued funding them. We resumed funding within three months. Um, we ultimately uh, issued a report on Sunrall. We said their governance was satisfactory from an operational point of view, but there were some overarching legislative issues about how that company is run, which made us very uncomfortable. Um, for example, the, the board is limited by the, the Sunrall Act to only eight members. You can't run an entity that size with only an eight-member board. It's just crazy. Anyway, but we can't change that. And the other two, um, the other two being Eskimo and Transit, we never cleared for funding. And, in fact, we have not done additional funding to in, all, in the last three years. Andrew Cantor is the chief investment officer and often the voice of reason and courage when others stay under the parapet. Well, appropriate song from Eric Clapton, and we say a warm welcome to Valence Watson, the brother of the late Gavin Watson. Cheap as uh, Valence has been lots of airplay again uh, about uh, Gavin's passing. But let's just go back a little bit. Uh, the family has been, well, first of all, I, I remember talking to you on that Monday that, uh, that Gavin passed, and you were very confused. You weren't making any uh, assumptions, but uh, yes. you did say you'd be investigating. And what, yes. what exactly did you guys do to, to try and get more clarity on this? Uh, well, well, Alec, uh, the, the two things that we did do was um, uh, hire a, um, a, uh, a crash investigator, an accident investigator, and also a pathologist. And we've had some 
some feedback on some of these things, but there hasn't been um, a full report, written report on on this plus the toxicology. So let's just go back a little bit because your brother lived in Krugersdorp, yet the yes. uh, the accident where he passed or where his body was found was at Or Tambo. So did you have you been able to establish his movements that Monday morning? No, no, Alec. That's uh, well, well. That's that's the question here because he's was the media immediately said he didn't have a cell phone on him, which was strange. Well, it's not so strange. He did have a cell phone on him, clearly, but it was located at places other than where the accident happened. And also, uh, he's like uh, at that time of the morning to take him. We worked out 27 minutes from his. Uh, his uh, townhouse in Krugersdorp to the airport. and But he left the townhouse, from what we can gather, at seven minutes past four, and uh, the accident occurs at five past five. To slow down so there, uh, Valence, so he, uh, how yeah. do you know that he left at seven minutes past four? Are there, are there cameras and things at the townhouse? Yes, yes, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a guard at the gate, so... That's indisputable. So th- mm. It shows, yeah, it's indisputable. He left at seven minutes past four, and uh, the we, we of course hear the accident happened. We weren't there, but we hear the accident happened at five minutes past five. It should have taken 27 minutes to get to the airport, and so there's just over over 30 minutes that uh, goes missing here. And and any idea what happened? Do the I mean the trackers and these kind of things in cars nowadays? Are you able to access that and get some understanding? <laughs> No, no, no. There's, there's, uh, this, this was a company vehicle. Gavin's uh, X5 that he used was a company vehicle, and that was seized by the liquidators some months ago. So uh, he, he was driving one in one of the other cars, and uh, we, we haven't had any idea about about the tracking of that. And I don't know whether it was a tracker, but um, but we, we, our, our, our accident investigator would be looking at all of those things. All right, so he left his home at seven minutes past four. It should have taken 27 minutes. Uh, and there's a half hour that's, that's gone yeah. missing. Were there, no, yeah. did, did, were there no eyewitnesses? Obviously, it's early in the morning, but someone must have been around. Well, the, 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 the eyewitness accounts don't gel with the uh, accident investigator because the eyewitness accounts, one of them, I don't know how many there were, but the one says that he was driving recklessly at a very high speed. And he was he was accelerating, uh, but according to the preliminary stuff, and I wasn't uh, at the meeting with the um, accident investigator, but he says the information that he was he gave was that for five seconds before the impact, the vehicle was driving at between eighty to one hundred kilometers an hour, and there was no acceleration. So it, it completely refutes that one, you know. So, um, hmm. so yeah, there there leaves more questions about. Uh, the so-called um, eyewitnesses. And any idea where he was in that half hour? Any evidence? No, no, absolutely not. We, we and that's the reason why we're trying to locate his his uh, telephone, which which at one stage was located to somewhere in uh, in Germiston, and 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 we got people to rush there to where it had been located on, uh, and 
and then from there it moved to Bryanston. So we got, I, I was actually slapping Jansburg at the time. So I was part of a group that went to the, to the Bryanston uh, uh, spot and we, we couldn't find it. But the, your problem is that it gives you the, it pinpoints it to within a 50 meter radius. So, you know, you've got houses around and everything. So you can't knock people up until, um, you know, you've got my brother's cell phone. Was it in near a house or in a built-up area? A uh, built-up area, yeah. So it was, it was, it, it, um, you know, it would show like the street, and then within that area, it will show you f- within 50 meters of that. Uh, they they do it uh, with regard to the towers around, you know. And then by the next morning, the uh, signal had gone. So that was the last we knew. And what about at the actual scene of the accident? Well, you know, the uh, we, you know, we don't exactly what happened there, but you know, some people are saying to us it is a little uh, odd that uh, that it'd be taken away by the cops. Uh, it would be the vehicle would be dismantled within no time whatsoever because that would sort of negate the the how things happen. For instance, there was a big gash on his neck, and. Uh, you know, uh, as uh, as far as we know, we we don't yet know what the gash was from. But uh, maybe if the car was intact, you'd have some sort of idea. But uh, we haven't had any information about what caused the gash. It was what, quite a bad gash. And, and, and what about other evidence that the uh, forensic uh, medical investigators have found? Have, have uh, they got Have they got anything more to to either discount the the suicide <laughs> idea? Oh, oh, well, uh, well, well, for. Well, both of the people that have, have been interacting with family on this, of course, completely negate that in that, that it was a uh, self-inflicted. What we do know is that uh, Gavin's aorta severed from the heart uh, at, 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 at point of impact. And, uh, the, and the issues that uh, would indicate uh, that the heart stopped before uh, or the heart wasn't functioning because if it was functioning the severing of the aorta from the heart would leave substantial amount of blood pumped into the uh, chest cavity and also there would be a substantial amount of blood in that the artery in the neck was cut and none of that and further issues that uh, we heard is that with this sort of accident and the impact of the uh, airbag you would have sort of brush abrasions on the arms, which would, in layman's terms, would be, look like a grass burn. And these weren't evident, which means the the heart wasn't pumping blood at the time. Wow. So, so, he, so he, he died before? That. It, yeah, well, that's absolutely. And, and also, you know, uh, I hear these things. I mean, the so-called popular media, as as you, as you heard me say, has been incredibly, incredibly vicious. And uh, no one is asking the right questions. I mean, uh, well, I'm, I'm now the executive of the state, and one of the issues was that uh, we thought he had a life policy, like most people have a life insurance. Well, he cancelled his life insurance from what we gather a few months ago. So this is not someone that's expecting... Uh, Anything other than a long life, because we we come from a family that, that that has longevity in our genes, you know. So, what else was in the estate? Given that uh, he's been painted as this guy who 
ripped the state and and taxpayers off to the tunes of hundreds of millions of rand. Well, you know, and that that is the tragedy, uh, 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 really, Alec, because uh, I haven't even opened the envelope. I was given the envelope a few days ago, and I just haven't had the the inclination to open the envelope. But what I've been told uh, is his house in Port Elizabeth, which is fully paid up, and it was bought in '97. Uh, that's like about 300 meters away from my house. And uh, other than that, he, uh, some money that will be in a bank account, I don't know how much that is, but it's definitely not uh, amounts like the $500 million that we're talking about that's supposed to be in Guernsey, according to some nefarious people out there. So, um, and, and, and other than that, that's about his uh, worldly uh, possessions with regard to the will that I have to execute on. So, so roughly how much? $10 million, $5 million, $100 million? Uh, no, no, it's, 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 Alec, uh, I wish for his family it was that, you know. I, I, I wish for his family because from what I gather, his life insurance was a fairly substantial one. I don't have the full amounts, but it would have made uh, it very comfortable for, for his kids and his wife, but uh, that's not the case. But there's definitely not millions around, absolutely not. So he cancelled his life insurance policy. He, yeah. He, uh, his heart stopped beating. Uh, some time, presumably, before yeah. he had the accident. Yeah. Yes. you got to be, you got to be, uh, well, strange questions have got to be going around in your head. What are they? Well, uh, Alec, we, you know, we've, we've been around a little while, you know, so uh, we, nothing shocks us. You know, uh, the previous government tried to have my brother Ronnie bumped off in, uh, in Gaborone many years ago. So we can put nothing past those elements that still exist in a society, but we're not going to have any any specific view until we have all all the facts at hand. You know, I don't want to point fingers or say anything until I have, have all the facts at hand. But but we we definitely there's a certain element of this society that has hated us from from the mid 70s and still do. So so we were we'll, we'll leave it open to to uh, the facts that we can we we can glean. And when are you expecting track. when are you expecting that to be? done? When are you expecting the facts to be available? Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure within the next few few weeks, Alec, but uh, I don't know whether it'll ever be answered that uh, what was on his cell phone uh, at 27 minutes past four, we know that he was on WhatsApp. Now, we don't know, did he WhatsApp someone or did someone WhatsApp him? Uh, he was going to the airport. The airport is on the opposite of town to where he lived. It's on the other side of where Jared, uh, um, it's past where Jared lives in Morningside, and he was going to meet the Jared, I think about half past seven, with regard to his final uh, input into the SARS inquiry on the, on the Tuesday morning. And has that input been made in, in, his, uh, in his absence? Uh, n- no, I, I, you know, I don't think so. Uh, but it, it is, it's all done. It is, it's all ready to be presented by him, as I say, at, at uh, 10 o'clock. And, and I actually saw it at the Jared's house. He had, he had actually worked, worked through some of the stuff with Gavin. Balance Watson, the brother of the late Gavin Watson, uh, the founder and chief executive of Basasa, a story that has, South, has gripped South Africa for months now, and it's not going away anytime soon. Well, this has been Rational Radio. I know we've uh, overstayed our welcome just slightly. Glad to have been in your company today, and uh, we look forward to being back with you same time, same place next week. Until then, cheerio.